In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We have some challenging texts today, and so I will begin by looking at the liturgy, taking refuge in a safe place. Not so safe as it turns out. I'm going to start at the beginning, skip to the end, and then I'll look at the gospel. At the beginning, as you have heard, a collect. Lord, you have taught us that all our doings without love are worth nothing. In fact, without love, whoever lives is counted dead before you. Where in the history of the early church did Cramner find this? Nowhere. It's one of the very few that he wrote himself out of his own heart. And the statement is pretty strong. Love is the one thing that sets God's people apart from anyone else. It's the mark of our citizenship in heaven. It's the one diplomatic outreach we can make to the world and hope to bring them into that place. But the world is not a neutral place at all, much as the prince of the world would like us to believe that there is some zone in the middle where people of goodwill can meet. Actively speaking, that zone is very much under the influence of the prince of this world, the accuser, Satan, to whom today's gospel texts refer. Now, if you look at the very last prayer we have, the blessing at the end, and people are happy to see this blessing come in right after the dismissal, may the cross of the Son of God, which is mightier than all the hosts of Satan, this is one little trespass by your liturgist-in-chief bending the rules of common worship to take this prayer, which is an Indian prayer before sleep, the Krista Raksha, from the Church of South India, probably the work of Bishop Leslie Newbinging, a missionary bishop. It's not meant to precede a final blessing. It's meant to lead us into a peaceful sleep. But it's full of the strongest invocations, if you like, of a battle between the prince of this world and the king of this world, and that is Jesus. For Jesus rules even now for those who know and those who hear and see him with hearts of faith. Now, Bishop Newbigging lived through some very difficult times in the history of Europe, the history of Asia. And he was once asked, a Bishop, would you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist? And his famous response, you've heard it before, was, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. That is his word, the word of the church to the world. A strong word, a word of encouragement, but also a word of reminding. The battle is not quite over, even though the victory has been won. 
How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus asks. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Satan, the accuser, specializes in division. Wherever he goes, he leaves people divided. He shares that with Jesus, who has the same gift. And if you follow Jesus through scripture, wherever he goes, he leaves people divided. Divided, if you like, between those who hear his call in their hearts and those who don't. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the age to come. We live in a divided world. You look at a map, you can see all the divisions and they're constantly changing. Those divisions run deep and they run wide, and they run wild, tripping us up, throwing us together, tearing us apart at every level, in the home, in the school, in the workplace, in the neighborhoods which ground us, in the families which bind us, in the political parties and belief systems which command our loyalty and claim our ever-shifting allegiance, in the nations which make up our world, and in the inner divisions which fragment our psyche, all divided, all at odds, regardless of the appearance of peace, which lulls us into that false sense of security which the national security state tries to give us. Beneath the surface, we are all armed to the teeth, of course, constantly stalking our borders, staking our claims, and scanning the horizon for interlopers or potential threats. Divisions, then, are a way of keeping people apart. And often the more people are alike, the more they will find something to tear them apart. Look at the history of Protestantism, if you like. We ourselves are a testimony to the fact that it's easier to break apart when the going gets tough than it is to hang in together. Divisions are also, then, a way of bringing people together as opponents, competitors, assailants, and adversaries. Yet what draws us together is not what makes us unlike, which sets us apart. It is that which makes us alike, that we like the same thing but cannot all have it. That's what draws us together and sets us at odds with one another. It is that which makes us the same that divides us, and we are what we like what we want and what we get, what we have. We are our possessions. And if what we have is what everybody else wants, we are happy. Whether a house or two, a car or two or three, a college degree, the more the merrier, and kids attending the same college, the job of our dreams and hopefully everybody else's, and so it goes. Now we don't choose what we want. For those of us who believe in free choice above all, this is tough. What we want is chosen for us. We work for it or not and maybe get it if we do. But even that is often out of our hands. Our wills are not free and we are susceptible to what everyone around us wants. 
to plant desires in our hearts or to tear them out. The whole industry which proposes that we need things that we didn't even know existed the day before and now can't live without them, which keeps our whole economy running at perhaps a little over proper temperature, is the key to our prosperity, and we know it. But the tension that it sets in our hearts that we never have enough and whatever we can get never satisfies us, never gives our heart the peace that only God can give, leads to conflict. The war of all against all, where that conflict goes, because there's always something beyond our reach, somebody always has something more, does not break out as often as it should. And it's due to our institutions, some of which we can see, others of which are invisible, beneath the surface, but all the more powerful for being out of sight but not out of mind. Our freedom is one of the institutions we pursue and one of the illusions that the accuser always holds before us. And that our desires are the one thing that belong to us and to us alone. The one thing that really are ours. Again, an illusion. The reformers knew that well. And if you look at the articles of religion, you will see the wariness with which they hold our free will. We have lost sight of so much of their psychological genius. Keep in mind that those who make what we want, want to keep on making it. And to do that, they must make sure that there are always more people that want what they make than have it. If we all wanted different things in this world, we would actually get on fine, to each his own. But we don't. We don't know what we want until someone else tells us. So we make sure that we all want the same thing. And cultures and national boundaries are all flattened by the set of values that the Western world in particular is holding out to the world. And that some have it and some don't is fine as long as we are the ones that have it. What if you don't? Then you go and get it, if you can, one way or another. And that's where our world is now, all divided up, all wanting more or less the same things that we in the West already have. Liberal democracy, believe it or not, even though we see doing a very good job of throwing it away. And the ones who made what we have, who don't live in liberal democracies, who by and large don't have what they made either because we end up with it, but they want it too. If there were enough planet Earths, we all might have the resources to enjoy the lifestyle that we enjoy, but we don't. Now the world should be at war over this, and this is Satan's delight, that the tension keeps brewing, the conflict is bursting out, it flames out all over the world, and then it disappears. As René Girard, who is the author of much of this line of thought, points out, with the weapons of mass destruction that we have now, a war of all against all wouldn't last long. It wouldn't have to. It wouldn't be long before there wasn't much of anything to want or to have or of anyone to want it. So we pick our battles. And we set things up 
by setting up scapegoats. This is the key to everything. Setting up people or people groups from within ourselves to focus on, to isolate, to define, and then to exclude. And then set them to bear the brunt of all our unresolved conflict. We've seen that in our history, how one people group can become the enemy. And as well as fighting everyone around them, nations can begin to systematically destroy their own citizens. Setting up people groups from within to bear the brunt of this unresolved conflict, it's really their fault, we say, and suddenly a lot of inner divisions are gone. Things that divide one party from another cease to matter as we group together. Remember 9-11, when we were attacked, how unified this country was. Rather a high price to pay, you might say, but it's paid all the time in some corners of the globe. And if the prince of the world has his way, we will get to pay it again and again. Setting them up to bear the blame for everything we want but can't quite get. They've either got it or got a way of getting it for us, getting us from getting it, and we have to get them out of the way to get things back on track. We draw together against a common enemy, usually the weakest and the most vulnerable, that we can easily eradicate. Scapegoats. And this is how the prince of this world keeps this world in order. Scapegoats, sacrifices who draw all that conflict and all that violence onto themselves and leave the larger world at peace until the next time. This is how Israel worked as well. Scapegoats, first human, then animal, driven from the temple into the wilderness or simply slaughtered in the temple, rounded up in the dark of night and made to disappear somewhere out of town, a dirty little secret that everyone knew, or eventually simply disposed of in common view. The key is powerlessness. A sheep or a lamb becomes the victim, not a bear or a lion cub. Survival of the fittest, we call it. And in a win-lose world, which is Satan's ultimate model, a zero-sum game, the weakest are not meant to live anyway. There is no place for the weakest. The fact that they are innocent is not even contemplated. And in the meantime, the divisions that really threaten to divide us have been papered over. The gloss of unity gleams from the blood-soaked streets as the God of this world sees his face graven with a thousand different masks, one in every locality. The people are united against the common enemy, but that the real enemy is us, is lost on everyone until this whole process starts again. And if history teaches us anything, it is that it can start quickly and get running in the place you least expected, maybe even right here. A win-lose world is the accuser's world. And when the church buys into this, there is very little hope. The love of power over and against the power of love. And power is so seductive for those especially who are being weaned away from it. 
It's an addiction we can't get rid of. We crave power wherever we are to resolve all our differences. We're seeing it act itself out again. A world order based not on freedom, political and economic, as a shared value, but on power. Power, pure and simple. Let's run the world together based only on who has the power. Now the church has fallen in line more or less in the past. So we pray that the prophetic voice which led the prophets again and again to tell Israel to put an end to this scapegoating project will be heard, as always it was when the kingdom model would be proclaimed. But we need one final scapegoat, and he is on the scene in today's gospel. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. At the heart of the gospel stands the innocent victim, arms outstretched to embrace us as we are nailing him to the cross. When the innocence of the victim is made clear, when hardened hearts are broken, with the guilt and horror and shame of what we have done once again as we shout, crucify him, crucify him. When we begin to gain compassion for the suffering creation and are committed to restore and reconcile rather than divide and conquer, then we have something worth fighting for. Then we have something worth dying for. But first that battle must be won. One as only Jesus can do it. The battle within ourselves and the battle among us. As long as we pin the blame on someone else for everything that's wrong with us, Satan will rule. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Those who are never wrong need no forgiveness. That is where the unforgivable sin lies, the one that cannot be forgiven because our hearts are too hard to ask for it. It is Satan who leads us down this path, tempts us to desire and to take what is not ours, who then accuses us of this original sin, and then further entraps us in an alibi, leading us to frame the innocent in order to conceal our own guilt. Adam and Eve set us off on this path. They could model their lives on God, implementing his plan of loving care for creation and all its creatures. Instead, they become God's rivals seeking the power and the know-how with which to achieve their own national security over and against the rest of creation. Not Adam and Eve first. Adam and Eve alone is their motto. They opt to go it alone, and we know where that path leads. And their descendants follow in their path despite God's continual intervention. It is only when they attempt to cast Jesus as the ultimate scapegoat that they realize that Jesus has indeed broken into Satan's house and initiated its collapse 
along all the fault lines which have kept a divided humanity at each other's throats. Jesus has come and outflanked the accuser by going in the spot reserved for the victim, not the victor. He has taken our stand, our side, with the losers in order that the strong man will be driven out. And he has said that the future belongs to the weak, the hungry, the poor, and the sick. That's not an imperial Roman eagle up there over our church, or even another eagle we might think of. It's not a sign of victory. Our banner is a sign of defeat, in ignominious defeat, brokenness, the greatest humiliation possible by one who surrendered to political powers so that we might surrender only to God. Every time the church has sided or flirted with power, the church has lost. So our Savior invites us to keep our path on the road he has set for us to the cross, to the cross, to the cross, to the power of that cross alone that can defeat the adversary. We bear the shame, we endure the humiliation, as the apostle says, knowing that that is the only way, that we can prove our citizenship in heaven over against all the ephemeral and tempting allegiances that come our way. As Raymond Schwager writes, and then I'm done, Jesus allowed himself to be drawn into the process of judgment, of self-judgment, by his adversaries, in order through participation in their lot to open up for them from inside another way out of their diabolical circle and hence a new path to salvation. His atoning deed was not a reimbursement for sins so that the Heavenly Father would forgive, but an act in the place of those who should have welcomed the kingdom of God, but who from the beginning rejected it. We pray for our leaders. Which of our leaders are praying? We might want to pray about that. Jesus uses precisely this rejection in order to advance under its cover into that dark realm where people judge themselves. By allowing sinners to shift their actions onto him, he managed to be drawn into their dark world, into their fear of death, into their fear of abandonment by God, in order from within to open up this world once more to the Father. Lord Jesus, give us the faith that the weapons with which you surrendered to earthly power are the only means for your victory and ours, the only way in which we will see the kingdom of God really and truly on earth forever and ever. Amen.